Last summer at the Olympics, which I'm sure many of you watched, two of the highlights of those weeks were the 10,000 and 5,000 meters races. You may remember both of those were won by Mo Farah from Team GB. Now, we were visiting Megan's parents at the time, and I can report that even the Americans were jumping up and down during those races. Whenever I watch races like that, it's no surprise to me that the athletes are running twice as fast as me. The amazing thing is that they keep it up for 10, 20, and even 30 laps of the track. For years, Mo Farah has been running 120 miles every week. So his success is not just about speed, it's about endurance. And endurance is a quality that's not only important for distance runners. It's a crucial part of the Christian life. Steve has already pointed us to that in his prayer. Endurance is vital for us as Christians. And it's vital for the church. The Apostle Paul understood that. For the last eight or nine weeks, we have seen together Paul, the evangelist and the church planter. We've seen him visiting city after city, and in each place a local church has begun. But Paul knows that his days as a church planter are almost over. His evangelistic tours are coming to an end. And Paul's concern is to leave behind enduring churches. Churches that will keep going and keep going well. Churches that will stay on track and stay healthy, and move forward. And our passage this morning sets out ingredients for an enduring church. If you haven't already turned to Acts, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. In the church Bible, that's page 1116. Last week, we ended in the city of Ephesus, We ended with the city clerk of Ephesus managing to calm a major disturbance at the big outdoor theater. And chapter 20 begins at that exact point. I'm going to read the whole chapter. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and, after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep 
as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we sailed over to Samos, and on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept and embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. The first three verses of this passage give us an important ingredient for an enduring church. Encouragement. 
In verse 1, we find Paul encouraging the disciples in Ephesus. Then he sets off to visit other groups of believers. And we're told he went speaking many words of encouragement to them. And this is the route he takes in chapter 20. From Ephesus, through Philippi to Corinth, and then he turns around, goes back to, Cor- back to Philippi, then Troas, and by the end of the chapter, he's in Miletus. And the traveling that Luke's descri- Luke describes for us in just a couple of verses here would actually have taken about two years. And this is not the first time that Paul has gone on an encouragement tour. Back in chapter 14, he revisited the churches that he'd set up in this area. And we were told that along with Barnabas, he spent his time strengthening and encouraging the disciples. This work of encouragement is a priority for Paul. So it's important for us to understand what it means to encourage. The word Luke uses has quite a wide meaning. It includes the idea of comforting someone, cheering them up. And it also includes the idea of urging and exhorting someone, giving them a prod in the right direction. You may have seen farmers encouraging their cattle across the road with a stick. So when Luke talks about Paul encouraging the believers, sometimes that meant the equivalent of a gentle arm around the shoulder. And sometimes it meant the equivalent of a fairly stern prod. In fact, when you come across the words comfort, exhort, and encourage in the New Testament, they are almost always translating the same Greek word in the original. The same Greek word is behind all three of those English words. But whether we're talking about the kind of encouragement that comforts or the kind that prods in the right direction, the intention is always the same. The aim is to keep these brothers and sisters in Christ going on with Christ. So we mustn't think there's only one way to encourage. Depending on the person and depending on the situation, the kind of encouragement that's called for is going to be different. The key thing is that as we give encouragement of any kind, our aim must be to keep our brother or sister going on with Christ. We're making a mistake if we think encouragement is all about telling people everything's okay. It might not be okay. If the person is disobeying God, then they need the urging and exhorting kind of encouragement. And we probably realize that depending on our personality, we all tend towards giving one kind of encouragement. Some of us almost automatically fall into comforting others. And for some of us, our natural tendency is to exhort others. That means each of us needs to pray for discernment to see what the person in front of us actually needs. And equally important, it means that we all have a part to play. Some of us are never going to summon up the courage to exhort another person. 
And some of us are always going to feel awkward and be awkward trying to comfort another person. Of course, we can all make progress. We can develop. We can all become better all-round comforters. Each of us should aim for that. But if a church body is to be a place where well-balanced encouragement is being given and received, then all of us need to be involved because we all have different strengths. And that leads us to a second ingredient for an enduring church, teamwork. Paul understood how vital this is. So far in our passage, Luke has only mentioned Paul. And so we may have a picture in our mind of Paul trudging along the open road by himself, mile after mile. But look at verse 4. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Paul had a team of seven others with him. Eight, if we include Luke, who's writing this. They could have hired a minibus. And this is not a one-off. If we examine Paul's entire ministry, we almost never see him working alone. And on the few occasions when he does work alone, it's not by choice. There are a few good reasons why Paul surrounded himself with co-workers. One reason was to give younger men on-the-job training in ministry. And no doubt another reason was that Paul knew his own weaknesses. There's no doubt at all that Paul cared deeply about these brothers and sisters in Christ. But I think it's fair to say that Paul tended toward the urging and prodding kind of encouragement. And yet he had the wisdom to see the need for co-workers who excelled in the arm around the shoulder kind of encouragement. Men like Barnabas who traveled with him for several years. And here, Paul has assembled a team who will help him deliver balanced encouragement in the churches. There are times when we all get irritated and upset because some people in church are so different from us. But actually, God set the church up like that on purpose. It's a good thing. It's liberating for us when we begin to see that. We don't need to be all the same. God never intended the church to be all white collar or all blue collar people. He never intended the church body to be full of driven people or full of chilled out people. He never intended all members of the body to be highly educated scholars or skilled craftsmen or dreamers or efficient matter-of-fact people. God put people as different as us together because he wanted it that way. It's perfect for the kind of teamwork that's needed in Christian ministry. God never intended church ministry to revolve around a one-man band, a super pastor who's good at everything. If pastors like that exist, there aren't very many of them. 
They're a bit like the abominable snowman or the Loch Ness Monster. Occasionally there are reported sightings of them, but it's all a bit dubious. And in any case, the aim is not to try and find a super pastor. The aim is to work as a team. That's the way God intends the church to function. Well, eventually, Paul and his team arrive at a place called Troas. They all pile out of the minibus, and they stay there for seven days. In verses 7 to 12, Luke describes the last evening there in Troas. Paul knows this may be his last ever time with these people. And so the way he spends these last hours shows what his priority is. And what we find him doing is teaching. Verse 7, on the first day of the week we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Most, if not all of these believers would have been at work during the day. Then they gather together after work and Luke says we came together to break bread. That simply means they ate together. And it's likely they also celebrated the Lord's Supper at the end of their meal. But then notice how Paul uses the time that's available to him. He doesn't lead the believers in a sing-along, for example. There's nothing wrong with that. There are many good things about singing together. But that is not what Paul prioritizes. Instead, he teaches for a long time, until midnight, And in fact, he doesn't even stop then. He has an enforced break at midnight. In verse 9, Luke says that as Paul talked on and on, a young man named Eutychus fell asleep. Every preacher can console themselves with the fact that even Paul couldn't keep everybody awake when he preached. And eventually, Eutychus sinks into a deep sleep. He falls out of the third story window and verse 9 says, they picked him up dead. But God performs an amazing miracle through Paul. Eutychus is restored to life. But the impression we get from this is that Paul hardly pauses long enough to do the miracle. Look at verse 10. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. Now it is true, this is not an everyday kind of situation. Paul is trying to squeeze the most out of every moment he has with these people. But the fact remains, his priority is to teach them. And equally important, they are eager to be taught. They stay until daylight, even if at least some of them were struggling to stay awake. Paul wants to see these people equipped so that they can persevere after he's gone. And that equipping happens through teaching. But it's important to realize that it is unlikely Paul gave an all-night sermon here. We shouldn't picture him giving a monologue all night. There was probably some discussion and questioning and answering going on. 
And the point is, there are different ways to teach. A sermon isn't the only way. So when we say teaching is a vital ingredient of an enduring church, please don't just think of sermons. I say that because very few Christians are called to stand in a pulpit and teach. But we are all called to teach. Listen to what Paul writes to the Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Paul was not writing those words to a group of pastors in Colossae. His letter is to the church body. I can think of a lady I know who has never stood up and preached a sermon, but she is constantly teaching the Bible. Not officially, but in conversation. And not in a forced way. She doesn't pull out notes and work her way through an outline. No, it's just that she knows and loves God's Word. And she ends up applying it to most of the things that she talks about. We can all do that. We can all share what we've been taught from God's Word. The alternative to that is to share our own wisdom or the wisdom we got from Richard and Judy. We find it easy enough to pass that stuff on to others. But in terms of value, that doesn't compare with what we've learned from God. What this means is that when we say teaching is an important ingredient for an enduring church, we should understand that as teaching and being taught. Each of us, according to our capacity, should seek to be learning and passing on what we learn. For you, that might be contributing to the discussion in your home group, or sometimes leading the discussion. It might be teaching Sunday school. It might be helping your kids apply what they've heard in Sunday school. It might be as simple as mentioning in conversation something you read in the Bible the other day. As individuals and as a church, we will not be built up and we will not persevere unless we prioritize teaching and being taught God's Word. It's a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. Well, after that eventful night of teaching in Truas, Paul moves on. And when he and his team get to a place called Miletus, he sends for the elders of the church over in Ephesus. Ephesus was about 30 miles away. And when the elders arrive, Paul knows that he may never see these men again either. And what he says here shows us more about his priorities. Yes, it's true he's speaking to church leaders here. But what he says applies to all Christians. Church leaders are simply to be leading the way in these things. Paul begins by pointing to himself. And he shows us the vital ingredient of humility and faithfulness. Those two go together, as we'll see. Look down to the middle of verse 18. 
He says to these Ephesians, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. When we hear Paul mentioning his own great humility, we might recoil a bit. We might assume that he's talking himself up. But actually the opposite is true. Commentators have pointed out that humility was not seen as a virtue in the ancient world. It was not a trendy idea back then. It was another word for weakness. Slaves were humble. In other words, they were counted as nothing. And no one wanted to be like that. Living a humble life was something people were ashamed of. They didn't talk about it. It was something they tried to hide. Owning up to to your humility was humiliating. But Christians are followers of Christ. The one who made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. The one who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again and again, Paul went through humiliation as he served Jesus. And that's the pattern for all servants of Jesus. We're not to be about self-promotion and self-exaltation. We're to be about promoting our Savior Exalting our Savior. And so we must be prepared for some personal humiliation. We must be prepared to become less and lose out on glory so that our Savior can get the glory that's due to him. But it's very important to notice humility does not mean lying down and giving up. Alongside humility We are called to faithfulness. Look at verse 20. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. Faithfulness involves being dependable, doing what you say you're going to do. And faithfulness also involves courage, being willing to do and say hard things that you don't want to do and say. That's faithfulness too. Paul was faithful in both senses. He invested himself in these people, teaching them publicly and from house to house, in large and small groups. And alongside that dependability and hard work, Paul showed courage. He was faithful to tell these people what they needed to hear not just what they wanted to hear. He didn't hesitate to preach anything that would be helpful. Further down in verse 27, he says, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, meaning the whole plan or purpose of God contained in the Bible. Some of the things in the Bible are not easy for us to listen to. And sometimes the helpful things that need to be said are not at all easy to say. And if that's true when it comes to teaching other Christians, it's equally true when it comes to sharing the good news with non-Christians. 
But Paul is able to say in verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Part of what it means to be a faithful Christian is to share what God says, not what we might like him to say or what people want to hear. Paul has mentioned humility and faithfulness. And he knows there's more humiliation ahead of him. And he is determined to be faithful to the very end. Verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. The reason humility and faithfulness belong together is because by itself, being faithful can lead to horrible pride. When someone feels they are the last defender of the faith, when they start to feel they're the only one courageous enough to say it like it is, humility can very quickly go out the window. We have to hold faithfulness and humility together. Then Paul says we need a God's eye view of the church. The church is not always very lovable. All of us can be prickly and difficult at times. We can let each other down. So what is it that will keep us loving the church? It's the fact that the church is precious to God. Look what Paul says to these church leaders at the end of verse 28. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. There may be days and weeks when the church is not precious to us, but it is always precious to God. We may not always treasure our brothers and sisters in Christ, but God paid an awesome price to buy those brothers and sisters for himself. If you and I are to love the church week in and week out, we must learn to see the church as God sees it. Most of us know people who profess to be Christians, but they've given up on the church. Maybe they gave up because the church didn't serve them or honor them or stroke them the way they wanted. Or maybe they think the church has nothing to teach them. They think they understand the Bible better than the preacher does. And they may be right. They think, what could the church give them? Others have given up on the church because they've realized it's full of sinners. They expected a community of angels. And instead, they find people like us. I don't want to belittle the fact that many people have had bad church experiences. 
They've been genuinely hurt by men and women who belong to the church. But when those wounded brothers and sisters decide they're going to have nothing more to do with the church, they are failing to see it as God sees it. They're seeing it through their own eyes, not through God's eyes. No one has more reason to give up on the church than God. But he bought the church with his own blood. God the Son came and died for the church. That's how committed God is to the church. And so Paul says to these representatives of the church in Ephesus, don't love the church because it's lovely. Love it because God loves it. And how are they to love it? By keeping watch over it, guarding it, fighting to protect it. That's what a shepherd does for his flock. And that's what we are to do for God's flock. A God's eye view of the church will give us a godly jealousy for the church. In verse 28, Paul says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is crucial for us to get hold of. The primary way we keep watch over the church is by keeping watch over ourselves. Now, Paul is not saying look out for number one. No, his point is keep watch over your own heart. Don't neglect your own relationship with God. And Paul is not saying withdraw from church so that it's just you and God. He's saying for the good of the church, make sure you're close to God. If you're going to be useful to the church, you need to keep watch over your own heart. Robert Murray McShane was a pastor in Scotland. And he once said, my people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. McShane understood that he was no good to anyone else if he wasn't walking with God himself. And this is not just true for pastors. Each one of us can say, my brother's and sister's greatest need is my own personal holiness. The book of Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. If you and I truly love the church, if we want to see the church prosper, we will pay attention to getting our own hearts in tune with God. We've all seen people serving in the church with bitter hearts. Maybe we've been there ourselves. Begrudging the time and effort that we're putting in. But maybe feeling superior at the same time because at least I'm doing it. I'm committed even if no one else is. God doesn't need our service in the first place. And he'd rather not have service that comes from a bitter, self-righteous heart. Paul says, keep watch over yourselves, and then you'll be useful to the rest of the flock. 
fighting the battle in our own heart will make us ready for the other battles. The ones that Paul mentions in verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. This is the second time Paul has mentioned his own tears. And you and I will only develop that kind of deep concern for God's church as we take on a God's eye view of the church. Paul knows that he is saying some weighty things to these representatives from Ephesus. He knows the responsibility may feel overwhelming to them. And so he closes by calling them to reliance on God's grace which produces perseverance and an authentic life. Verse 32, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. None of us is going to find the strength we need by looking within ourselves. That's the message of pop psychology. We've got to search for the hero inside ourselves. You've got to dig down deep and tap into your own strength and courage. But the Bible is much more realistic. The message of the Bible is that none of us have the strength we need within ourselves. None of us has the inner resources to be a faithful servant of God and a useful member of his church. We don't even have the inner strength to get through the everyday stresses of daily life. But, alongside that, the Bible is equally clear that our God has all the strength we need. We have a shepherd who leads us and restores us and comforts us. And he will never leave us. The church that's going to endure is the church that looks up to God. That looks to him for all the grace we need. Grace to serve his church. Grace to put in an honest day's work. Grace to be faithful to him in our singleness. Grace to be a faithful husband or wife. To be a faithful parent. Grace to trust him through unemployment or illness as we watch our bodies deteriorate. We were not designed to get through life on our own. We were designed to be built up through daily reliance on the stream of God's grace. And what does his grace produce? It produces perseverance and an authentic life. In verse 32, Paul has mentioned the inheritance that will be ours someday. God's grace will enable us to persevere until we receive that inheritance. And then Paul reminds these Ephesians how God's grace worked its way out in his life. Verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver 
or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Paul was a man who went about teaching. That was the public side of his life. That was the stuff that everybody saw. But when people became aware of the private side of Paul's life, they saw an authenticity in his life. In other words, they discovered he was the same man in private as he was in public. If there's one area where a lack of authenticity can show up, it's in the area of finances. But Paul's life stood the test in that area. It checked out. He wasn't greedy. He wasn't trying to feather his own nest. And the proof of that is that the Ephesians know it. They don't see Paul as some preacher who just passed through their city. No, both his teaching and his life have made a deep impression on them. They weep as they say goodbye to him. They are grieved at the thought of never seeing him again. That is the power of a life lived in reliance on God's grace. Now probably all of us have some difference between who we are in public and who we are in private. But as we learn to rely on God's transforming grace as we learn to come to him every day for new strength to serve and obey him, as we do that, then by his grace, we will more and more become the same people all the time. Our lives will be authentic, with no acting and no performance. We will be who we appear to be, and our lives will make a powerful impression. When we talk about God's grace, we're not talking about something vague. God's grace is his undeserved favor. And we see his grace most clearly when we look at the cross where he bought us sinners with his own blood. This morning we've been thinking about being an enduring church. And it's right that we end by remembering how we came to be the church in the first place. We're going to do that as we sing together, Oh, to see the dawn.